So I started the question of the day was pick one. And you had the choice of a whole bunch of different like spies or agents or I added the people at the end just because I knew that some people really needed to see Inspector Gadget. Um, and so I added the other people on the end. If you're using the live event, you'll notice also that I put Ethan Hawk in the live event instead of Ethan Hunt because apparently my brain was on like actors from a bygone era. I don't know. Is he still acting? I don't even know. But anyway, it was supposed to be the Mission Impossible guy, and so they got that all corrected before our worship time started, but it still ended up in the live event as Ethan Hawke. But anyway, um, I, I put those names down there because as one of the people in this room said today, James Bond, of course, James Bond. Because see, there's a thing. Whether it's Jack Ryan or James Bond, Inspector Gadget, or all these other people, they all have superhuman abilities that we admire, right? They're all capable of doing things that are beyond us. And we all want to be sort of on a secret mission. We all want to have that ability to go on a mission and accomplish the goal and experience great things. And since we know we can't do it because we feel so inadequate, we watch the movies about it. But the thing, and I'm just going to lay the card out on the table here, the thing that makes James Bond the coolest. Now, just side note, I'm not endorsing the James Bond movies. There are a lot of things that happen in the James Bond movies that I don't think Christians should be participating in or glorifying over, but nonetheless, some of them, you know, they're kind of good movies. I'm just not endorsing them. I want to make that absolutely clear. However, James Bond is unquestionably the coolest. He might not be the best. He might not be the most skilled. He might not be the best fighter. He might not be the best investigator. But he is, without a doubt, the coolest. If James Dean were a spy, he would be James Bond. But see, there's a reason that James Bond is the coolest, and it goes beyond the actors they cast for him. James Bond is working for the queen, All these other people are working for some sort of abstract moral code. All the other people are working for the government of the United States or some some secretive organization. But ultimately, James Bond is working for royalty. And there's something that all of us feel about that. The idea that a person has a mission directly given to them, even though it comes through mediators, but a mission that comes from the royal, a mission that comes from the king or the queen. There's something in us that knows that's a cool thing. And today, you're going to get a mission from the king of kings. Today, Jesus himself is going to give you a job. He's going to give me a job. He's going to give us a mission. And it's in Matthew chapter 10. And I already told you I was a little bit nervous about this because one of the biggest problems with the book of Matthew and the story of Jesus is that he is never the king that we want. He is never the king that we expect to have. See, we want a king who will send us on a mission against them for the sake of us. That's the kind of mission we want. We want a king who, first of all, is going to lay down the boundary lines of who's the us and who's the them. Then we want this king to tell us why the them are so much them and why the us are so much us. And then we want the king to give us an assignment where we know the us are going to win and so we can confidently go after the them and make them lose. 
The problem with Jesus is, one, he doesn't draw the line of us and them anywhere near a place that we want it to be drawn. And secondly, when he gives us a mission, the mission has nothing to do with us against them. Instead, the mission our king gives to us is a mission where all of us exist to help them win. This is the thing about Jesus that flips the tables, turns everything upside down. We think the spies, the secret agents, we think they're cool and we want to be that. And we think the king would be cool to give us such a job and then we get our job and we don't like our job. Because our job is not about us. Our job is about them. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to pick the story up at the end of last week. So last week we were in Matthew chapter 9. And at the very end of Matthew chapter 9, we read these words. We'll put them on the screen. They should show up in your device or on your phone or whatever it is. It says this in verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We left this last week because Jesus had done all of these miracles. He'd done all of these important things in chapters 8 and 9, and we recognized that all of Jesus' work in this world was for the goal of bringing in the harvest, the goal of bringing in new people. The goal of gathering people who ordinarily would be outcasts, Jesus was bringing them in. That's what he's all about. Now, what we didn't do last Sunday is read the very next sentence. Because when Jesus tells his followers to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into his harvest field, he doesn't end the chapter there. Jesus isn't writing this down and then he comes to the end and says, that's a nice chapter break. And then he flips the page and starts a new chapter. He's just continuing to do his ministry. Matthew also did not put a chapter break there. Matthew was just writing the next thing that was important to Matthew to write down, the next thing the Holy Spirit had inspired him to remember about his time with Jesus. And so Matthew doesn't put a chapter break. And so if we go right from the phrase, pray that God would send out workers, into the very next line, you read these words. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he mentions them by name. And then verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent. These 12 Jesus sent. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of this moment where Jesus says to his followers, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, you need to ask God to send workers. Five minutes later, you, I am sending. Jesus is A, taking the place of the authority of God to send these guys out even after he has told them they need to pray and ask the Father to send out workers, Jesus immediately answers it by sending them out as workers into the harvest field. 
But here's the thing. All last week, we were talking about Jesus' main motivation was doing everything that he was doing to gather people in. And now he has sent people out? That seems a little weird, right? Jesus' whole motivation is to gather people in, and now he's taken 12, and he's sent them out. And it's because of this. Jesus knows that in order for him to gather, we must go. In order for him to gather, we must go. In order for the harvest to be brought in, harvesters need to go out. It is the only way this works. And so at the very beginning of this chapter, we have to grasp this, that Jesus' entire existence for the ministry that he was doing, the miracles, the work that he was doing, was to draw people to himself. And so as soon as he gets some who are near him, he sends them back out to get more. This is how Jesus operates. This is the mission he gave to his 12. And as we are going to see today, it is also the mission that he gives to you and to me. We're going to start again at verse 1 in Matthew chapter 10. But we're going to read through the whole chapter, little bit by little bit. I'm going to stop at certain points along the way. But I want to remind you of a few things. Number one, Matthew is not chronological. This is really important. The story of Matthew, just like the story of Luke and the story of Mark, is primarily to tell us the story of Jesus in an orderly way, but not necessarily in perfectly historical order. Luke is the most chronological of all of them. Mark is kind of writing down from Peter's perspective, and Peter was a fisherman, and his mind was all over the place, if you ever read about Peter. And so sometimes his story gets a little jumpy and wonky. Sometimes he'll tell the story of Jesus cursing a fig tree, and then the fig tree doesn't wither until like a day later, because, you know, that's that's the way the story's going. Maybe that's intentional, maybe it's unintentional. We don't know exactly all the stuff about Mark, but we definitely know Matthew is not chronological. He does a few things that are really, really interesting. Now, I made the argument a couple weeks ago that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he took places, he took things that he said from all different sermons, and they all came together. And we had two basic theories. Either Matthew was assembling bits and pieces from many different sermons Jesus preached and brought them together, or Matthew recorded one of Jesus' sermons, and Jesus also repeated the same sermon in many different ways and in many different times. And it doesn't really matter. What matters is 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 that Jesus said these things, and Matthew wanted us to know them. But then when you get to chapter 10, something really interesting happens. In Matthew 10, Jesus gives his his followers a charge, a mission. But in Matthew chapter 10, we find at least four different events that happen at four different times as recorded by the other Gospels. If you read in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will identify his disciples, as we're going to see in just a few seconds. Jesus will identify his disciples. And in all three of these stories, there's, the rough, there's a rough chronology that matches. Okay, so the, one of the key moments before all the disciples are mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that a tax collector named Levi or Matthew gets picked to be one of Jesus' followers. That happens in all three of these Gospels. And then after that, a few more things happen, and that differs from Gospel to Gospel. And then after that, 
there's the mentioning of all 12 names. It's a roughly similar chronology. What's different, though, is that Matthew is the only book where he precedes the mentioning of the 12 disciples with the statement about the harvest. It's pretty clear that Matthew has taken four different things that happened in Jesus' life and he's condensing them all into one story for us so that we get the picture of something Matthew is trying to illustrate to us. And so I have two tasks for you today. Number one, I have the task of showing you how Matthew's structure gives us a unique point that the other Gospels don't share with us. I mean, it's there, it's in Jesus' ministry, and it's in Jesus' ministry in many different ways, but Matthew is doing it by the way he's crafting this particular narrative. The second thing is I have to explain to you what he means by the things that he says. So let's start with the structure piece first. I'll take you into Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Here it is. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. First of all, that would be amazingly cool. I'd love to talk more about that because I think it would be awesome to have the power to do such things. But uh, I have to move on because we've got a chapter to hit. Uh, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I'm going to pause real quick there. A lot of commentators have done a lot of work trying to identify what we know about these disciples, and we don't know a whole lot about these disciples. I will just mention a few things that I think are curious, interesting, things I didn't even know about until this week when I did some study about it. But every time the 12 disciples are mentioned, they are always mentioned with the same guy at the beginning and the same guy at the end. Peter always comes first. Judas Iscariot always comes last, the one who betrayed Jesus. That's something that happens in every time the list is mentioned. But something else I didn't know is that number five, number, what is it? So one, two, three, four is, is this section. Then number five is the same in all the lists. That's Philip. And then five, six, seven, eight. Number nine is also the same in all the lists. And so a lot of scholars think that the disciples were actually split up into, into three groups of four. That there were three groups of four. Each group had a leader. Peter was the leader of his group. Peter, James, John, Andrew. Uh, and then Philip was the leader of his group. And then there was the leader of the next group. And so they think that there might have been uh, three groups of four because the, fir- the name shows up in the same spot in all the lists. And that's interesting, okay, if you, if you think it's interesting. But something else that I just learned about is that Matthew's other name was Levi. Do you know that Levi, we are actually told who his dad was. His dad was a guy named Alphaeus. And what's interesting is that Alphaeus is also the name of a guy, the dad of a guy named James in this list. And so that means Matthew and James might have been brothers if their dad was the same Alphaeus. But there's one last little piece. You know how I told you that there are these three groups of four? Matthew was clearly in the second group. He wasn't in the first group. He was in the second group. But in his gospel, when he lists his four, he puts his name last in his little group. It's just a little symbol to the rest of us that he views himself as less important than the others. 
It's just something to remember. A a sacrificial, a self-sacrificial kind of quality in just where you place your name. Keep going. It says this in verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles. Or actually, I should stop there because there's a blank I have to give you. Um, So anyway, we, we get the names of all these people. And the thing is that in Matthew, these names come right after the harvest field incident. And so there's something I already mentioned to you, but now I need to give you an official blank to fill in if you're taking notes. That official blank is this. We are the answer to our prayers. Not just our prayers. We are the answer to Jesus's prayer. Remember, Jesus is looking at the people and he says, the the fields are white for the harvest. He's looking at the people. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask God to send out workers. Jesus is saying, I want more workers. I'm asking you to pray with me that God would send more workers. Oh, by the way, I'm sending you as some workers out into the harvest field. In other words, Jesus asks them to pray, and then he tells them that they are the answer to their own prayer. And not just the answer to their own prayer, the answer to Jesus' prayer. Did you ever realize that you might be the answer to Jesus' prayer? There might be a time in Scripture, in fact, I encourage you to look at the various times when Jesus prays and recognize that you yourself are the answer to so many of Jesus' prayers. But, you know, let's keep going because there's more. Now let's, let's go to verse 5. Verse 5. It says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. I'm going to pause there for just a minute. In the NIV Bible that I have, there's a paragraph spot that I have stopped right in the middle of. But there's a reason I'm stopping here at the end of verse 10. You see, something really fascinating, at least fascinating to me, has just happened. Jesus is sending out his disciples, the 12 of them, to a mission that involves some remarkable, dramatic things. And also he tells them, don't take any money with you and don't get any money while you're on the way. And then he explains why. And Matthew's account is really great because it gives us the context where Jesus says, okay, don't take any money. And then Jesus explains why. What's fascinating to me is that in the book of Luke, This happens in two separate incidents. This happens two separate times. This thing up to verse 10 is very, very similar to what happens when Luke records Jesus sending out the 12. I've written down in your live event notes of where to find these things in Luke. It's Luke chapter 9 and then also Luke chapter 10. But what we just read is a very close parallel to the first few verses of Luke 9 where Jesus is sending out the 12 to a mission. The next chapter in Luke 10, Jesus sends out a second group of people, the 72. 
And what we read next in Matthew is very, very closely paralleled to what Luke tells us is Jesus sending out the 72. Okay, so we've got a couple options. Option number one, anytime Jesus sent a group of people out, he said the same thing to them. He said the same thing that began with don't take any any money with you and then what comes next. Option number two, Jesus sent the 12 out with one set of rules and the 72 out with an expanded set of rules, but Matthew has combined these two stories into one. Before I give you what I think the answer might be, let's just go ahead and read the rest of what Matthew has to say here, verses 11 through 16. It says this, whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town." I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Again, the reason I'm stopping there is that that's where the parallel to Luke stops. The shrewd as snakes, the innocent as doves, that's where the parallel to Luke stops. The next verse takes us somewhere else that we'll get to in just a little bit. But here's the thing. If Jesus said the same command to the 12 and the 72, and Luke splits it up into two different stories, then we have one bit of knowledge. We know that Jesus, it doesn't matter who he was sending out, he gave them the same instructions. And if Jesus gave slightly different instructions in these two different accounts or two different moments, and Matthew records them all as one moment right here in chapter 10, then we know what Matthew is thinking. Matthew is thinking that Jesus, it doesn't matter if it's the 12 or the 72, Jesus is basically giving the same instructions. You see, no matter which one of these perspectives you take, you get the same answer. Matthew, who incidentally was one of the people on this mission, Luke wasn't on the mission, Mark wasn't on this mission, Matthew was one of the twelve. Matthew was one of the people on this mission, and his conclusion is that there's no reason to separate what Jesus said to the twelve and what he said to the seventy-two. The way I would phrase it is this. This mission that Jesus gives is for all of his followers, not just the twelve, And it can't even just be for the 72. This mission has to be Jesus' mission to all of his followers. Because Matthew doesn't tell us about the 12 or the 72 or the different groups of people. He just says, this is what Jesus said. But then Matthew does something else that is weird. Because the very next verse, verse 17, takes us to a place in Mark. Mark chapter 13. Where, the, where Jesus was asked by his disciples to tell him, for Jesus to tell them about the end times. And in Mark, Jesus begins to tell them about the end times. But in Matthew, Matthew sticks all of that stuff right here in this moment. Let me show it to you. Here it is in Matthew, verse 17. He says, Be on your guard. 
You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Quick comment. What I find interesting about this is that Jesus looks, the way Matthew was telling us the story, it looks like Jesus says, here's your first mission. I'm sending you out. You're going to go out. You're going to heal people. You're going to perform these miracles, and you're going to not take any money, and you're going to just you know, live on the generosity of the people in, in the town where you go, but some people are going to hate you, and they're going to imprison you, and they're going to flog you, and like this is their first mission, right? Wouldn't that just freak, freak? freak you out if your very first mission, here you are, let's see, you just gotten your driver's license and your mom says, okay, son, I need you to go to the store and pick up some milk and some cheese. Oh, and by the way, as you begin to leave the store, some cops are going to pull you over. They're going to take you to jail. And while you're in jail, they're going to beat you to a bloody pulp. But don't worry, you will survive and I will come into the hospital and I will get you. Okay, here are the keys. Right, what would you do at that moment in time? You'd be like, um, hang on a second here. I just want to drive somewhere. <laughs> like, Jesus, it sounds to us like Matthew is putting all this stuff together, but we know that during the first mission the 12 took, none of them were flogged or imprisoned. We know during the mission the 72 took, none of them were flogged and none of them were imprisoned. That's why when we're reading in Matthew's story, it's helpful for us to look at what Mark has to say about it. But let's keep going. Let's finish up this little section in Matthew. I want to take you through verse 23. It says, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you're persecuted in one place... Flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Again, that's another thing that doesn't seem to make sense because Jesus says you won't even make it through Israel before the Son of Man comes. As if the second coming of Jesus is going to happen while the first coming of Jesus is still happening. Like that's a weird, that's a weird statement for Matthew to have recorded Jesus as saying at this moment. And that's one of the reasons why it makes the most sense to recognize that Matthew is pulling together these multiple different accounts to slam them all together because he's got a bigger point. And before I get to that bigger point, let me just share with you what Mark says. In Mark 13, I'll put it up on the screen here, it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? So Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be Do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end, he says, is still to come. He's talking about the end, okay? Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth birth pangs. We're not even at the end yet. We're just at the beginning of the end. He then says, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. This is an interesting thing he says. He says, 
this message is going to go not just to all of Israel, but to all the nations. Keep going. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Doesn't that sound incredibly familiar? All of this stuff that Jesus says to his disciples about the end is the stuff that Matthew records as happening in his day or as, ha- as Jesus warning them might happen in their day on this mission. See, even as Matthew is saying, okay, we've got the 12 and we've got the 72, I'm bringing them together because this command is for all of Jesus' followers. Matthew's doing the same thing with time. He says, okay, there's a thing going on now and there's a thing going on in the future and I'm bringing them all together because this mission is for all of Jesus' followers for all time. Not just today. It's not just the 12. It's not just the 72. It's not just the 2,000 years ago. This mission that Jesus is giving is for all time for all of his followers. That's why I can say that you... And I are the sent out ones. Jesus gathers his 12 together. He calls them apostles, which is the Greek word that means those who have been sent. He calls them apostles and he sends them out because Jesus cannot gather unless we are sent. And then Matthew does this really important thing by bringing all of these pieces together to try to emphasize that it's you and me too. It's for all people who are following Jesus, for all time, this is our mission. Let's put it this way. Jesus wants us to gather the harvest no matter what. Yeah, there's going to be opposition. Yeah, there are going to be people who stand in your way. Yeah, there are going to be things that make it difficult, but it doesn't matter. Jesus wants us to gather the harvest no matter what. And I'd love to Stop here for just a moment and cover all of the different promises Jesus gave there. I mean, really encouraging promises where Jesus is saying things like, you are going to have the words to speak. You don't have to worry about what to say. Really amazing promises where Jesus is saying, listen, even if they kill you, I'm still with you. Stuff like that. But this is where the mission gets weird. Because see, I told you that it wasn't just that the king was going to give you a mission. I also told you that part of the king's job is to identify the us versus the them. Part of the king's job is to draw the dividing line between who are the us and who are the them. Who are the ones who are on the mission and what are they trying to do with this mission? And the next section of Matthew is those lines. It's difficult to follow. I don't mean it's difficult to understand. It's difficult to do. Let me share it with you. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. Jesus says, The student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. 
It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, which is a a nickname or a proper name for a demonic force that the people back then thought was behind most of the demonic possessions, whether that was their name for Satan or one of Satan's underlings, another demon, it doesn't really matter. It's just another name that they were using to accuse Jesus of doing what he did by the power of Satan. But Jesus says, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you will welcome me. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who's my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Now I read that through fairly quickly. And there's a lot of stuff going on. And depending on your background, and depending on how you were raised, you heard some things and didn't hear some other things. The environment in which I was raised, not my parents' environment, nor the church environment directly, but just the worldview in which I was raised, repeatedly used this passage in a way that I think is completely opposite of what Jesus intended. And my background isn't alone, it's not unique. I think many of us read the Bible through lenses of something that we were once taught that made sense to us at the time, and we have not allowed the Bible to challenge. For me, this passage is the passage that gave me the excuse to see myself as the hero and the world as the enemy. Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Christians are the ones who are supposed to have the sword of the Lord in their hand, which is the word of God, and the word of God is the thing that we use to let everybody else know they are our enemies. This is the kind of mindset that I sort of developed through my early years. 
This idea that Christianity was an us versus them situation. That it was a culture war between those who were willing to follow God's law and those who were so not. I learned that Christianity was supposed to be, we are the heroes, the world is the enemy, and our job is to bring the sword. Now, no one in my life ever told me that that sword was a real sword. No one ever said it was supposed to really be actually going to war, even though back in the Middle Ages, Christians frequently used real swords and went to real war to do this thing right here. But in my day, it wasn't a real sword. It wasn't a real war. Instead, it was, a, it was kind of a metaphorical war that only existed when I was face to face with someone who wasn't a Jesus follower. But in more recent times, it has become a political war and a Facebook war. It has become a war where we leverage every single bit of our ability and our power at our disposal, not swords, but every other bit of power we have at our disposal to remind the world that they are our enemies. And there are passages in Matthew 10 that let us do this. Let me share them with you. These are the dividing line kinds of passages. I'll just put a bunch of them up on the screen. Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet. If you go into a town and they don't accept you, well then just shake the dust off your feet. And you know what? Back in that day, that was a really, really, really insulting move. If you had gone into someone's house, when you left their house, if you kind of scraped your foot on the ground as you left their house, that was insulting. When you left a town and you took off your shoe and you banged it on the ground to try to loosen up all the dirt that was from that town, that was insulting. When you shake the dust off your feet, that was an insult. And Jesus is here telling them, if someone doesn't accept you, you just insult them. Sounds like it, at least. Seems that way. He says, be shrewd as snakes. Ah, see? Christians are supposed to use whatever power we have at our disposal to get the thing done, to get the mission done. What is the mission? Well, we forgot about that, but we know that it's against these people for some reason. Or the next one, be on your guard against men. See? The world around us, they're out for us. They're trying to get us. We need to be afraid of them. We need to be on our guard against them. And if we have power, we need to leverage our power so that we can be on guard against the people of the world. Brother will betray brother. Okay, fine. Even my own brother in my own family is someone I can't even trust. He might be my enemy. If they're not a Jesus follower, they're my enemy. Or this last one, all men will hate you. Well, I hate you back. Right? I don't know if you've met a Christian like that, and I don't know if you've been a Christian like that. I don't know if you've ever met a church like that or been in a church like that, but I imagine if you just, you know, doom scroll a little bit through your Facebook feed or Twitter, you are going to find some Christians who may in fact quote one of these lines from Matthew chapter 10 to prove their point that it's us against the world. There's just, you know, problem with that. The problem, of course, is Jesus. And that these aren't the only things he said. He also said some other things that cause a different kind of dividing line to show up in our mind. Let me show you, okay? He also says to them, when you shake the dust off your feet, let your peace return to you. Jesus says, if they don't accept you, let your peace return to you. This is a weird phrase. Let your peace return to you. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, wait a minute, when you leave, don't leave upset. Retain your peace. 
When you entered the house, you let your peace be on that house because you were in the house and you are a person of peace. But when you leave that town, don't leave your peace behind. Don't leave your peace back there. Carry your peace with you. You don't walk away from the world in bitterness because they didn't accept you the way you thought they should accept you. No, you're a person who lives at peace. You can shake the dust off your feet because you don't need to carry any of that baggage with you to the next group of people who need to know about the message of Jesus. Let your peace return to you. Be people of peace. Or this next one, be innocent as doves. He said be shrewd as snakes. Sure, there's a a world of shrewdness that Christians can have right now. The Bible app, I learned this this morning. I didn't even know about this. But the Bible app that you probably all have on your phone, the YouVersion Bible app, they are raising money to get a Bible in every single human language by 2033. At least a portion of scripture in 100% of the languages by 2033, a whole New Testament in 99% of human languages, and then the whole Bible in like 95% of human languages all by 2033. And why are they doing this? Because finally we have enough consistency and connection among Christians in this world through the silliness of internet and mobile apps that we can mobilize people to actually work together. That's called being shrewd as snakes. That's also being innocent as doves. Being shrewd can take you down all kinds of crazy paths. And that's why Jesus said, no, be innocent as doves. They will attack you on my account. They will hate you because of me. And this is the most important part. When Jesus says that you're going to be persecuted, never once does he say you're going to be persecuted for your beliefs. Not once. Not once does Jesus say you are going to be persecuted because... You refuse to drink on certain days. Never once does Jesus say you're going to be persecuted because your child prays for their lunch in school. Never once does Jesus say you're going to be persecuted for all of the things we feel so persecuted about. What he says is you're going to be persecuted because of me. There's one and only one reason that is a valid reason for us to be persecuted. Someone don't like Jesus, and you look too much like him. Someone doesn't like Jesus, and you just remind that person of Jesus. And since they don't like Jesus, and you are way too much like Jesus, they got to do something about you. Jesus says, They will attack you on my account. They will hate you because of me. Here's the thing. You look at these, and what you see is a very, very small picture of Jesus himself. See, the dividing line is not 
all of the things that we say the dividing line should be. You know, I'm in, they're out. I'm following God's law. They're not following God's law. I prayed the prayer of salvation. They didn't pray the prayer of salvation. I got dunked all the way in water. They didn't get dunked all the way in water. They just got a little bit of sprinkle. They got dunked or something. You know, none of the dividing lines of humanity are the dividing lines that Jesus would make. There's one and only dividing line that Jesus says here. He doesn't say it explicitly, but he hints at it when he says, on my account and because of me. The dividing line is Jesus himself. That's it. In other words, if you want to know who the us versus them are, us are all the people who are Jesus. Them are all the people who are not Jesus. Us are all the people who are like Jesus And them are all the people who are not. Now, the question, of course, is what does the us need to do about the them? Of course, the question before that is, are you even in the us? Are you one of the people who looks so much like Jesus that people just can't tell you apart? You know, they look at you and they're like, wait a minute, did Jesus come to earth? They look a lot like Bob. They also look a lot like Jesus. I can't tell them apart. If that's the kind of person you are, then you're us. I'm not sure if I've ever been in the us. But if the dividing line is Jesus, then somehow I need to be with him and him alone, not just on his side, with him. And someone might say, well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say that thing about bringing a sword Aren't we supposed to somehow leverage human power to bring the sword against the, the, the problems in our society, against the, the forces of evil against Jesus? Well, let me just read that passage to you again, okay? Let's go back to it. It says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. Yeah, Jesus, you came to bring the hammer down. He says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father. A do- Wait a minute. He said, I came to bring a sword. A sword is a thing that divides. Jesus doesn't say, I came to kill that man. He said, I came to divide. I, there's a division that this sword is bringing. And this division is a division between the man and his father, between the daughter and her mother. What possibly could this be? Let's keep going. He says, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. There's this sword that's going to create a dividing line between one person and another. And he says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. There we go. This is a dividing line that is trying to cut down your heart. It's trying to cut down in your heart. Where is your love? Are you the person who loves the world, your father, your mother, the things of this world more than Jesus? Or are you a person who loves Jesus? This sword, this dividing line is going to cut down because it's Jesus himself is going to cut down what kind of person are you. Are you a person on the Jesus side of things? Or are you a person who's got anything else That's where this line is going to cut. And it's going to cause some problems because there are people that you used to love and now you love Jesus more. And that's going to hurt them. 
And there's some things that you used to do, but now you love Jesus more. And that's going to bother your friends who like to do those things with you. And there's some attitudes that you used to hold, and now you love Jesus more. And so there's a political party that might disagree with the fact that now all of a sudden you don't share 100% of their convictions on everything because, oh my goodness, you love Jesus more. And all of a sudden, this dividing line is beginning to cause all kinds of problems in your life because you've just decided, I love Jesus more. Keep going. He says this. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And now that dividing line has hit just a little closer to home. Because this sword is not a sword that cuts you off from your brother. It's not a sword that cuts you off from your mother or your father. This is a sword that cuts you off from you. Anyone who will not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. The sword that Jesus came to bring is the sword that separates you from you. All of the things that you thought were you, all of the perspectives that you hold as your own, all of the history that has so much made who you think you are and who you think you should be. All of the background information that has caused you to have the worldview that you have. All of the emotions and all of the attitudes and all of that stuff that is jumbled around inside your heart and you feel so close to it and you feel so personal with it and it is so much you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. My sword kills you. You need to be a person who is willing to take up your cross and die and follow me. See, this dividing line, it's a dividing line where Jesus himself is the dividing line. And for Christians, for Christians, the question that we need to ask is who is willing to actually follow Jesus all the way? Who are those who are willing to follow Jesus all the way. The dividing line between us and them is really a dividing line between Jesus and everything else. And if I am holding on to anything that is still my own, that has not been brought under the lordship and authority of Christ through the process of death and resurrection, my own death to my own stuff and my resurrection to what he has for me, then that thing means I am not worthy of Jesus. And I am a them. But I want to leave you on a slightly more positive note to show you just a few more lines from Matthew chapter 10 that we already read that I want to reiterate to you. Jesus says this, it is enough for the student to be like his teacher. Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says, do not be afraid. You are very precious, more precious than many sparrows. Jesus says, I will give you the words that you need. Jesus says, if someone blesses you, they bless me. 
And if they bless me, they're blessing the Father who sent me. And if they bless the Father who sent me and he's pleased with that, then they're going to be rewarded. This whole chain is going to get a reward. And so if someone blesses you, they're blessing me, which blesses the Father, and it's going to cause a chain of reward. We tend to look at the world as if it's us versus them. But that's not true. We're not at war with the world. We are not in a culture war or a moral war or anything like that. You know what we are in? We are in a war with ourselves and against our own selfishness. Because Jesus says there is one thing that matters. It is him. And he has called us to be on his mission to spread the message of him to the world. And we are willing to be like Jesus to bring that message to the world. In other words, it is not us against them. It is us for them and for Jesus. Because he wants the harvest to be brought in. He wants the harvest to be brought in. And the only way for the harvest to be brought in is for us to go. And if we go out there and they don't accept us, that's fine. Shake the dust off your feet. Don't worry about it. Keep your peace with you. You know, be shrewd, fine. Pay attention. Don't throw your pearls before swine. But listen, just go ahead and go out there and don't worry because your heavenly father loves you. He knows every single hair on your head. He's got everything. Every one of your days numbers he numbered, he knows exactly what your purpose is and he knows exactly what reward he's going to give you and so you can trust him. So listen, you go out there and you don't have to fight them. You go out there for them to bring them to Jesus who loves them. Jesus scares people and so some people won't accept it. Jesus says the first will be last. Jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is the one who turns the societal life upside down. That scares people, and I know. That might scare you too. But we're not in this for the now. We're in this for the forever. And Jesus has a mission for us. I'll put it to you this way. There's no... There's no blanks. It's just a statement I want to read to you. It says this. I'm an agent of the king with the authority of the king, with a message of the kingdom for people who may or may not receive the king. And even if they slay me, my reward is secure. That's it. I'm an agent of the king with the authority of the king, with a message of the kingdom for people who may or may not receive the king. I don't care if they receive me. The whole question is whether they receive him. And they may not. And I don't need to worry about that. I don't need to let that bother me. I can still be innocent. Let the person who doesn't want to follow the king not follow the king. Because as Jesus said, listen, persecutions are going to come. And if you get persecuted in one town, you got to move to the next town. Because I tell you what, you're not even going to make it through Israel before the Son of Man comes again. Do you know what he means by that? He means you don't have enough time. The second coming is coming. You don't have enough time. And so if you don't get good traction in one place, get moving because someone else needs to hear this message. No skin off my nose. No dust on my shoes. I'm keeping my peace with me. There's another one who needs to hear the message. I'm an agent of the king with the authority of the king and a message of the kingdom. 
for people who may or may not receive the king, and even if they slay me, I'm in good hands. God will reward us. My challenge to all of us is that we live this out. We live it out in the way we talk. We live it out in the way we post. We live it out in the way we vote. We live it out in the way we interact. We live it out in Christian circles. We live it out outside of Christian circles because no matter where we are, the only thing that matters is do I love Jesus more than all this other crud? And am I willing to let my love for Jesus cause me to sacrifice myself for you? If those things are true, you're on the mission. If those things are not true, would you join me on this mission? It's a good place to be. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.